The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Team 32 out of 32. This is it. This is the last one. Well, technically second to last one, but in terms of the individual team previews, this is it, EJ. End of the road. LA Rams, defending Super Bowl champs, final team in our final division. This has been a wild ride. Uh, It has been more work than I ever thought it would be, but also way more rewarding than I thought it ever could be. Uh, this has been incredible, and I'm I'm excited to be here, uh, and I'm excited to be able to have a normal sleep schedule again. It'll be really cool, right? I'll be super <laughs> excited about that, but this is a beautiful way to wrap it up. Uh, we didn't plan it necessarily this way to have the Super Bowl champs be the last preview for teams, but it is a beautiful cap on what has been a really cool series. I think the best work we've ever done together, um, certainly a whole lot more of it in terms of work that we've done and a whole lot more response from everybody that is consuming this which is the whole reason we make the content so it's been everything all the work all the hassle all the struggle uh, all the reward um, and all the fun so we hope all of you out there some of you hardcores who have watched every single one so far yeah, we got to come up with some kind of virtual badge or something for you because that is a marathon march. We know it. And yes, I will really enjoy uh, not having to do it for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think we record these roughly two weeks ahead of time. So we're going to have a whole two weeks of not having to record anything. And oh, my God, I am I'm looking forward to <laughs> over that. the moon about that. It's ridiculously <laughs> exciting. Well, with that being said. Let's get to these L.A. Rams. Uh, first things first, a little bit of a 2021 recap. If you don't remember what happened to arguably the best team in football last year, this is to kind of jog your memory a little bit, setting up all of the offseason moves that we're going to talk about, which then is giving us the roster that we see today, now a week-ish into camp by the time we're recording this. They did go 12-5, and five, obviously made their playoff run, had some really incredible wins in January, including that big one over the Bucks uh, with that crazy throw to Cooper Cup that iced it. Went 12-5, and five, won the Super Bowl, obviously won their division as well. They were second in the division for most of the year, and then the Cardinals, you know, 
Cardinals did up. <laughs> and the Rams just kept on chugging and ended up winning the whole division. They were 5-3 and three at home, so solid home record, uh, but almost, almost perfect on the road. 7-2, and two, which is really, really hard to do, especially when you're playing nine road games and to win all but two of them is an incredible feat. Uh, and then in the last five games, this is something we highlight for every single team. You know, how did you finish out the year? Obviously, they had some work to do to catch up to Arizona. They were dominant late in the year, finished 4-1 and one in that stretch, you know, set themselves up for a strong playoff run with a home playoff game and capitalized on that. Won a Super Bowl in their home stadium. Overall, that was a dream season for Rams and Rams fans. And it was everything that you could ever hope for, you know, when you're trading for a franchise quarterback and going all in. And I mean, we saw them literally post the meme from their own Twitter account, you know, pushing all the chips in the middle of the table. They went for it. It paid off. And yet, as good as that team was, and they won the whole damn thing, this year's Rams team might be even better. Don't disagree. It was an amazing team, an amazing run. It's so rare. Many teams have tried that approach. Many, many. You could you could list the super teams as long as your arm. People that collect free agents and say, nope, this collection of talent is going to do it. And it very rarely pays off that way because being a team is about a lot more than collecting talent, which we all know the Rams were able to do both, to have an amazing assemblage of talent. People call it an all-star team. They just kept grabbing high-profile players who were ejected from other teams for different reasons. And it works. And they do it in their home stadium. And their wide receiver has one of the greatest wide receiver seasons ever in history doing it. Like, they're just, you don't need... If you wrote that as a movie script, somebody that knew football would read it, take one look at it, and go, this is a little rich, right? You're just kind of laying it on thick. But that's exactly the way it played out. Is this year's team going to be better? I think they have a chance to, and that alone is a real credit to the power structure we're going to talk about in a second, setting them up and not being complacent. I think... Sean McVay is one of the best coaches, if not the best coach in the NFL at sort of self-scouting and moving, right? Not saying, hey, it worked, so we're just going to polish that up and run it back. He's the anti that. We're going to talk about that several times throughout this episode. And that gives me more hope because very, very rarely is running it back with the same people in the same way the answer because the league moves. Well, why don't we talk about Sean McVay and his coordinators? Because I do want to expand on that. Looking at the power structure, Les Need's been there forever at this point. Year 11, great GM, aggressive GM, which is what we love about him. <laughs> Sean McVay already in year six. His coordinators, we don't really get to see them last past three years with the team all that often. And all of his coordinators right now. The most tenured one is Thomas Brown at year three with the organization. He's the assistant head coach and tight ends coach. Offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen, coming over. He's in his first year coming over from Kentucky. All the great work that Will Levis did last year uh, at Kentucky. He was the OC for that. Raheem Morris, year two at D.C. Uh, and then Joe DiCamillis, year two at special teams. Uh, he was in Jacksonville, I think, 
before the Urban Meyer hiring and then went over to the Rams after he left Jacksonville. But I want to talk about the turnover at coordinator that the Ram, any coordinator, name them, that the Rams consistently have because people keep poaching from Sean McVay's staff. And I think it's a credit to him that despite being possibly the least stable organization in terms of who's actually running the team, he and Les are basically the only constants at this point. Despite the constant instability and the constant turnover, we've seen McVay empower his coordinators as if he is a coach that has had the same coordinators forever. Like we saw, you know, say with Sean Payton in New Orleans, where he had the same coordinators for a decade, and those guys owned their units. Sean McVay gives the same kind of ownership of the offense and the defense at this point to his coordinators. And I think that even though he is an offensive coach and, you know, he's done a lot of play calling in the past, specifically last year, that was Kevin O'Connell's offense. He ran the show there. So I think the Rams offense this year has the potential to not look that similar to the Rams offense last year because we don't know what Liam Cohen is going to do. Liam Cohen, excuse me, compared to what Kevin O'Connell did because they're two entirely different play callers. And so I think that it's going to be a fresh Rams team, even though it is familiar talent. And for me, at least, that's really exciting. And that's what McVay does every year now because he had tried to run it back and he got figured out. And there was some serious soul searching for him in that offseason where he went, oh, I can't just hone this to a finer point. That's not going to work. I have to change my approach fundamentally. And I think that was a major light bulb. And if we, you know, eventually when he stops coaching, whenever that is, look back at McVeigh's career, that's going to be a pivotal moment. There are going to be several, but that's going to be one where he went away in the offseason and said, you know, I believe so strongly in these concepts. And they worked until they didn't. People solve everything in this league, and the only way to be unsolvable is to keep moving and to keep growing and keep evolving, keep changing, because as soon as you get static, somebody's going to come up with a way to crack the code on that. And he's not only like come to that or relinquished that control and sort of said, okay, I guess, he's embraced that and sort of gone hard the other way you know, part out of necessity because anybody that rides with him in an elevator gets a head coaching job. But if you look at his assistants, it's one of the youngest staffs we've looked at. We're looking Mm -hmm. at guys with like five years of experience, six, three, one, all over the staff. There are very few guys on this staff. There's one or two that I can think of that have 15 or 18 or 20 years worth of experience everybody else is in the single digits and he wants it that way that's not out of necessity all the way down through the position coaching ranks it's because he wants fresh ideas he wants chargers he wants people that are going to push and do different things and he's come to say yeah yeah and create a sort of idea space for the rams that is, as far as I know, unlike any other NFL team. And that doesn't just permeate through play calling. It goes to personnel and how they evaluate, how they see their draft picks as capital, use them. It's just a whole different approach based on ideas and forward thinking and really pushing that envelope. And that's 
fascinatingly exciting to me because there isn't anybody else doing it like that. Looking at the uh, assistance underneath that top layer, by the way, number one, there's yet another connection to the John Carroll Illuminati. That <laughs> the John Carroll Mafia is represented, yes. Every, every single week, I swear to God, we have at least one. The Rams are holding that standard again this week. Uh, but number two, they have some of the top assistants for any position group in the entire league on this staff, including, um, you know, some like award winners for assistant of the year in the past. And so I think even though there has been a lot of turnover at coordinator, the fact that they have a whole bunch of, I don't want to use the term lower level assistants, just position assistants, I guess we'll just say, they have so much experience at that layer that there's still a whole bunch of continuity from year to year. And they're all really, really good at their job. Like this is a roster that has been a little bit top heavy in the past. And they've had a lot of unpro uh, um, a lot of, uh, what's the word? Unproven talent that makes up their depth in the past. And yet they've coached up a lot of unknown guys to be consistent, solid contributors when that top layer gets inundated with injuries. So it's almost a sneaky deep team because of how good their assistants are coaching up guys that they're not using first, second, or third round picks on. They have to go dumpster diving with UDFAs and day three picks constantly, and they're still getting some really good players out of it because of the staff. Speaks to the coaching 100%. I also would be completely remiss if I didn't say how refreshing it was that there was one OC, <laughs> one DC, and one special teams coach. I will forgive them the assistant head coach for the tight ends coach. Fine. No problem. After what we've been through in the last two episodes, way to go, McVay. Keep it that way. Uh, I kid. But on offense, notable coaches have to start off with Greg Olson. He is a senior offensive assistant. He's actually in his third stint with the Rams, which is interesting. His first one was way back in 2006 with Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt, all that. Had a tremendous offense that really launched his NFL career. But this is his second stint with McVay on the Rams. Uh, he's been the Raiders OC for the last four years, but he's back. And now I really think he's going to be that versatile problem solver that McVay can lean on and just say, hey, this week I need you to I need you to solve this particular equation. Eric Yarber is the wide receivers coach. First year coaching in the NFL was 1998 with the Seahawks. So between Olsen and Yarber, you might say, ah, but EJ, you said everybody on the staff was young. These are the gray beards of the staff with a lot of experience. The ones we're going to get to have a lot less. Um, he's helped mold the Rams receiving core into a consistently top flight NFL unit. He himself was a 12th round, yes, it used to go to 12 rounds, NFL draft pick by Washington, played three seasons himself as a wide receiver and a punt returner. So fun facts about the NFL draft. I can squeeze those in anywhere. Zach Robinson. Can you imagine if we had to do live streams for 12 rounds of the draft no. these days? By no. the way. Stop. Just Don't. Die. Nope. As much as I love UDFAs, those would only take us through about eight or nine. I really don't want to go to 12. Zach Robinson, the pass game coordinator and QB coach, former PFF analyst and NFL QB. He was drafted by the Patriots and had stints with the Seahawks, Lions, and Bengals. I, to me, this shows McVay's willingness to reach outside the sort of expected norm of where you would go to get an NFL coach. And 
pick a person that he thinks is talented, whose ideas he likes, and bring him into the fold and develop him as a coach, just like they develop players um, from some unsung locales. Zach Cromer is an offensive assistant, enters his seventh NFL season, the sixth with the Rams, and he is the son of current Bills offensive line coach Aaron Cromer. On defense and special teams, got to start with Eric Henderson, defensive line and run game coordinator. Since Henderson's arrival, the Rams have ranked top five in sacks in back-to-back years. That is a difficult thing to do, that kind of consistency. Yes, a guy named Aaron Donald helps out, but that's not all. There have been a lot of other players around Donald that have had career years and been poached by other teams, just like the coaches. He is a former NFL player uh, with Bengals for three seasons and a UFL player with, I love this, the Las Vegas Locomotives for three seasons. So the amount of teams we've had represented in coaching, coaches playing histories has been fantastic. We've had NFL Europe, uh, of course, the NFL, the CFL, the Arena League, the XFL, uh, the UFL. Just about every league you can think of that plays professional football, uh, some players have gone on to be coaches in the NFL. Chris Shula is the pass game coordinator and defensive backs coach. Shula was McVay's college teammate for four years at Miami of Ohio. So that's where it started. But then, dum-dum-dum, spent one season as the defensive coordinator at John Carroll University. Know the name, folks. He's the son of former NFL head coach David Shula and the grandson of Hall of Fame head coach Don Shula. So one of two families that has three generations in NFL coaching. And Lance Schulters is the last one I'll mention. Defensive assistant. He has a nine-year playing career as an NFL safety with the 49ers, the Titans, and the Dolphins twice, and the Falcons once. Um, Good to see Lance Schulters' name back on the sidelines. So Chris Shula, fun fact, uh, when he was at John Carroll, he's the defensive coordinator in 2014, right? Do you know who the defensive coordinator in 2013 was? I think we've already said his name because we've been through every other team. (laughs) That was Brandon Staley. And then... (laughs) We've said his name a lot. (laughs) Then, do you know who the defensive coordinator was in 2015 and 2016? No. Again, Brandon Staley. Brandon Staley... Oh, yeah, so he he's two like... stints at John Carroll. He left James Madison to be their DC for a year. And at that point, Shula went in uh, to be DC. And then Staley came back until 2016. And then he went straight to the Bears in 2017-2018 to coach under Fangio for that crazy good Bears defense in mm-hmm. 2018. And then Shula went from John Carroll to uh, the Chargers. Ironically, where Staley is now the head coach. So yeah, that's super fun. But yeah, apparently the theme for today is guys who leave and come back because Greg Olson's on his third stint with the Rams, and uh, you know Lance Schulter's played for the Dolphins twice. <laughs> he played for them, then left, and then came back and played for them again. So um, leaving and coming back, you can always go home again, I guess. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, the roster. I don't even want to call it shakeup. Uh, re turnover yeah turnover it's probably the best word for it because they lost a lot of talent use the term lost loosely they were just making decisions at that point about who they were going to pay and who they weren't but they also spent so much money in typical rams fashion of our owners worth 11 gazillion dollars so we can always kick the can down the road and not care they spent so much money on their own core as well as bringing in some really good players from the outside as well that even though they lost a whole bunch of guys, 
they they still probably got better, to be honest, just looking at who they brought in. But I'll go over the losses first. Odell it technically counts, but he still isn't signed anywhere because he's hurt, and there's still a decent chance that he signs back with the Rams anyway because he really likes it there, and they love Odell too, and I wouldn't be surprised if he just signs somewhere midseason after he's healed up and not even midseason, late in the season for a playoff, playoff push after he's healed up and uh, he's working out for people and shows that he's healthy. He'll sign somewhere eventually, and I wouldn't be shocked if it's the Rams. Uh, but Von Miller, they could not keep because he is very expensive and they could not match the offer that the Bills threw out there. Nobody could match the offer that the Bills threw out there, to be honest. He signed for $20 million a year for technically a six-year deal, but it's really not. It's more like a, a three-year deal. But either way, the Rams were not going to match that. They could not match Sebastian Joseph Day going to play under Staley, speaking of him, again with the Chargers. They paid him $8 million a year down there because they were desperate for interior D-line help. Couldn't match that. Uh, Troy Reader, speaking of, also going to the Chargers. Sonny Michelle is gone. He's in Miami. Darius Williams got $10 million from the Jags. They could not afford that either. Austin Corbett, this one stung a little bit for me. Uh, I felt that he was a solid piece. He's now in Carolina at nearly $9 million a year. Ogbonia Okoronkwo is in Houston at a little over $3 million. And then Robert Woods, they traded away because after they made a whole bunch of moves on the receiving court, there just wasn't... There wasn't a good spot for Rob anymore, which sounds terrible because Robert Woods is an amazing receiver. And, and it sounds callous, like, oh, we don't have a spot for Robert freaking Woods. But really, they if you look at their depth chart, like they just didn't. They just did not have a spot for him. Um, and so they they worked with him to make sure that they traded him to a place he wanted to be, which was Tennessee. Uh, he's getting still $16 million a year from Tennessee at this point. He's happy. Rams are happy. They did right by him. Happy As happy an ending as you can hope for, I would say, out of that situation. Now, in terms of the money they spent after, you know, letting guys walk away and saving money and trading people and all that kind of stuff. The money they spent. Matthew Stafford getting $40 million a year now, which I'm sorry, Matthew Stafford at $40 million compared to the newly minted Kyler Murray deal of $46-ish million a year. I would say the Rams won out on that one. Uh, Aaron Donald, also freshly signed to 31 to 32-ish million a year. Still not enough for what he brings to the table, so that's still a value in my book. Even though he is incredibly expensive, I don't care. It's Aaron Donald. Cooper Cup, 26.7 million a year. I would say that's about right in line with the current receiver market. You're seeing A.J. Brown get 25, Debo's getting 24, DK's getting 24. Cooper Cup at about two to three million over that sure that's about expected he's still making three million less than Tyreek technically so again take the small victories uh Brandon Powell they brought back at just a million uh for receiver depth and special teams ability Brian Allen uh they brought back once again at six million a year uh to start for them and then uh John Wolford backup quarterback extraordinaire somebody who McVay really loves they brought him back for less than a million in terms of third-party additions where they spent even more money, Troy Hill, general theme of the day, returning home again, coming back to the Rams this year at about $4.5 million to play nickel for them, or at least compete for the starting nickel job. And then they spent $25 million collectively on Allen Robinson and Bobby Wagner. Wagner, legend of the game, 
first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the best linebackers of his entire generation. Obviously has lost a step physically, but mentally he is still better than ever, and he's still getting to spots on time because he's just reading things faster than everybody. And they've commented about that in camp where, you know, no wasted steps, incredibly efficient mover, not as fast as he used to be, but he's so smart and, you know, just so experienced that he's still making a hell of a lot of plays as their starting Mike linebacker. And then Allen Robinson, remember folks, he's only 29. Uh, He's only 29. He is an incredibly talented receiver arguably the most talented receiver on the team and that's a team with Cooper Cup on it and he's never had a good quarterback his entire life he has completely blown everybody away in camp and I think a motivated healthy Allen Robinson with a top tier quarterback is something that we have never seen before and quite frankly I'm terrified to see it because I think he is about to demolish the NFL like he's already been really good in his career with bad offenses around him and bad quarterback situations and bad coaches and, you know, recovering from ACL tears. This is the first time in his life that he's had everything go his way going into a season. He's going to destroy people. I can feel it. Yes. This is me (laughs) crying through the pain. Allen Robinson is going to tear the damn lid off. And everybody that says otherwise wasn't paying attention. He shut it down last year in Chicago. You can say what you want about the decision. It's Bears fans fairly salty about that. Everybody makes their own decisions. He knew it was a horrible gig. He didn't want to get hurt again for that, and he knew he wanted to go somewhere where he could play with a top-tier quarterback. He gets to arguably play with one of the best quarterbacks in the league, just won a Super Bowl, just powered Cooper Cup to one of the best receiving seasons in history of the NFL. Allen Robinson is licking his damn chops right now. He is going to feast, and he already has. The Rams are like, wow, we knew he was good, but he's really, 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 really good. And I've been telling people, get used to this storyline. You're going to hear it early. You're going to hear it often. And as long as he stays healthy, it's not going to shut down through the whole season. The idea of having to shut down Robinson and Cooper Cup on any given week should be giving opposing defensive coordinators nightmares it is pure nightmare fuel right now but i want to go back to darius williams not necessarily the most high profile loss for them but a guy that played extremely well opposite jalen ramsey and was under the radar i think deserves every dime of that 10 million dollars he got i think he's going to play great for the jaguars that one stung as well you were like oh, austin corbett that stung yeah austin corbett did sting i think darius williams is going to sting too i don't think because of all the player development we talked about it's going to sting as badly as it might have on another team but they're going to feel it Darius Williams is a really really good player Um, the big three you know honestly under the radar big four Matt Stafford Aaron Donald and Cooper Cup if you're bringing those back usually you're not importing Allen Robinson and a Hall of Fame linebacker at the same time the fourth I'd really consider is Brian Allen Brian Allen, the center of that Rams line, calling protections. Obviously, Stafford was very comfortable with him. Now, Brian Allen doesn't cost a ton, $6 million for an established Super Bowl-winning center. Losing him, I think, would have been another kind of under-the-radar thing that hurt. Uh, 
he agrees to go back. He keeps continuity, some continuity on that offensive line. And I think that's really going to be important. And Wolford is really, really important, even though he's only $895,000. Because if Matt Stafford suffers a setback with the trouble right now he's got with sort of tendonitis in his arm or a hundred other injuries that he's played through in Detroit. He is tough as nails, but he has broken his back. He's, you know, he's 34 years old. He's taken a ton of hits. If he breaks down, the Rams will skip fewer beats than many teams moving to their backup quarterback. They love and trust John Wolford and getting him back to be the ultimate sort of security blanket who can continue to execute in that high-powered offense for under a million dollars is a masterstroke that not a lot of people are going to pay attention to. What do you think Stafford spends on PT a year? I don't want to know. It's got to be because he has had the shit beat out of him for yes, 10 years. As, as a Chicago <laughs> fan, I've watched most of it. And he is, we'll start off by saying he is literally tough as nails. That guy never comes out. He played with a broken back. Now, as someone who has broken my back, I healed pretty quickly, but I certainly wasn't staring down 300-pounders who wanted to turn me into dust. I, You know, there is no questioning his toughness. Is he going to feel it for the rest of his life? He is. He has been beaten about, and he's 34 years old. I'm really glad he won a Super Bowl, but... There's a lot of good players that he's going to go up against. It's the NFL. And they're not going to pull up because it's Matt Stafford. They're not going to pull up because he won a Super Bowl. They're going to hammer him as hard as they can within the rules. And it gets harder and harder to hold up. So I think Wolford is a really key piece to this team that they hope they never need. But if they do, Wolford can win them games. And that's really rare for most backup quarterbacks in the NFL. Worst case scenario, uh, if Stafford goes down, Wolfer goes down, Perkins goes down, Cam Akers, <laughs> high school quarterback, highly rated. Like a I didn't talk high about Perkins. I love Perkins, but uh, Wolford is their first guy, even though they really like Bryce Perkins. Like, Wolford is – don't look at his they, contract. Don't look at his size. Bryce Perkins. They They love Bryce Perkins, but I bet they would play Wolford first. Oh, 100% they would. Yeah, and most people would be like, no, no. Yeah, they would. Uh, it's it's a really important part of that team because, again, Stafford, he's not a glass cannon. He's a iron cannon. He's been there forever, but he's got a lot of scars on him, and he could go down. It's not outside their own possibility. I don't, I don't care how tough you are. Some injuries you just can't play through, and I hope he doesn't get him because, man, the Rams are fun to watch with him at the helm last year and i want to see that again for a full season period end of story but if he does this is not a team rams fans that's going to fall apart they're going to keep right on clicking let's look at the draft uh in typical rams fashion no first round pick no second round pick they had to do all their damage round three and later as per usual i truly can't remember the last rams first round pick i even saw it had to have been what Five years was was Jalen Ramsey? No, Jalen Ramsey was a Jags. No, he's a pick. trade. <laughs> he was he was a first round pick, but they traded it for him. Who was the last Rams first round pick? They don't do it. They don't select players in the first round. They just don't. They decided 
a while ago, Les Snead and the organization decided we are going to use our first round picks on known quantities. We don't like the uncertainty. We don't like the roll of the dice that the first round of the draft provides. Generally, we would rather spend that for a known quantity, for a Jalen Ramsey, for a, you know, well, Matt Stafford, of course, but they it's capital to them that they use in a different way, and that is zigging while the rest of the NFL zags, and a lot of people said, well, you're never going to go, and they have to follow that up with the other side of the coin, which is, you talked about it in the open, you have to replenish the team in a different way. You can't just trade away picks and then go, yeah, we're cool with no depth. You need to find and develop your depth in a different way, and the Rams have done that too, but as far as first-round picks go, they do not make them. So it hasn't happened since 2016, which was Jared Goff. Looking at their last four first-round picks that they did make, uh, which was, I think, when Les Snead came in uh, around 2013, I think, 2012, 2013. So if he came in in 2013, which I think he did, his first first first-round pick ever was Tavon Austin. And then he took Greg Robinson and Aaron Donald, the next year so all right let's go out and alec ogletree so let's let's just give him two out of four let's be generous and give him two out of four and then he had todd Gurley. the year after that worked for a little while but even going into the draft we knew he had knee issues and then those knee issues didn't go away you know only lasted a few good years on the team and then you know his career unfortunately ended rather early He's only drafted six years ago, and he's been out of the league for two years. So, again, that's telling. And then he took off in 2016. So his overall hit rate in the first round, not that great. Not that great. Like, he got Aaron Donald, but in terms of long-term stars and contributors on the team, he's like one out of six. So, yeah, kind of makes sense that he trades away those picks. Yeah, they took a different approach to that value, and they've done very well with that. The players that they have traded first-round picks for have not become busts with the Rams. Quite the opposite. They've become major contributors to what turned into a Super Bowl run. So interesting approach by them, and I think we might see more teams try it because it is a copycat league. But for this draft, they had one round three pick, one round four pick, one round five pick, two sixth rounds and three seventh round picks so again doing the bulk of their work down in the draft their top pick round three pick 104 logan bruss the offensive guard out of wisconsin uh they made a big deal about the fact that mcveigh was in a press conference when cole strange went off the board and he was like oh we were gonna we were gonna pick him in the third round they end up going with logan bruss they needed to reload the interior offensive line and they pick one of the horses from wisconsin Big, pile-moving offensive guard. Round four, pick 142, Dakobe Durant, cornerback, South Carolina State. One of my favorite picks in their draft, and there are a couple that I really like, and they they relied really heavily on folks that were at the Shrine Bowl. We saw a lot of these guys. We saw Dakobe Durant. He is an excellent player. He has made waves in camp already. I think he will be contributing sooner rather than later, and he's also an excellent special teamer, but I named that last because he is not a guy that is going to make his living on special teams throughout his NFL career. He will be a defensive starter for them. Round five, pick 164, Kyron Williams, the running back out of Notre Dame. Interesting choice stylistically, 
doesn't really match anybody they have on their roster, which is a good thing, brings a different set of skills, but doesn't really match anybody that they've had on their roster for a while either. So I'm fascinated to see down the line how his usage shakes out as a Ram as opposed to how it did at Notre Dame. Round six, pick 211, Quentin Lake, son of Carnell Lake, the safety out of UCLA. We saw him at practice last year. We then saw him again at the Shrine Bowl. Big hitter coming out of the secondary. Uh, really fast, smart player as well. Not really fast, fast enough, I'll say, and really smart. So he looks faster. He plays faster on the field. Um, very smart, very experienced player. I'm surprised he lasted to the sixth round, given his experience and the conference he played in, but he was there. Rams benefit, pick the local kid. Round six, pick 212, Darion Kendrick, the cornerback from Georgia, also making big waves in camp early and surprising a lot of people that he was available in round six. I liked his tape a lot. I figured this would be about the range he would get picked in. I would have been comfortable starting in the fifth picking him. They get him in the sixth, good value. Not surprised that he's a good player, though. He was a very solid player on tape, but Georgia's defense was so freaking loaded that yeah. by the time you got to Darion Kendrick, you were just a little exhausted by all the talent that was there. Didn't mean he was a bad player. He wasn't, and they saw that as well. Again, zigging when other people zag and getting a value, which they have to do with this approach. If they don't do that, they won't end up with enough starters. They'll end up with a bunch of stars, but not enough starters. Then we get into the seventh round, pick 235. They pick Daniel Hardy, linebacker from Montana State. Round seven, the next pick is 253. Russ Yeast, the safety from Kansas State. And round seven, the last pick, 261, A.J. R. Curry, the offensive tackle from Michigan State. Now, they've had, obviously, they like their linemen from the Big Ten, and they've had a pretty good success rate with those players. These are guys that nobody was clamoring over. They're seventh-round picks. The chances that one of them or two of them, even in the Rams' developmental system, turn into players that not only stick but contribute are really good. The Rams are really good at this, and their assessment model is very different. Jordan Rodriguez, who is, I think, the best beat writer working on the NFL right now, and there ends the statement, not the best young one, not the best female one, just the best beat writer working on the NFL right now, did an entire piece about how the Rams are different in their selection process and how it mates with that strategy of not of giving away high picks or trading away high picks for assets and then having to refill, but also having a different lens and a different way of assessing so that their choices open up and Therefore, two of these three out of the seventh round, I bet, end up sticking on the roster, and I would say at least one becomes a contributor. I think Hardy, for me, is the most likely out of that trio uh, just because of the special team's versatility that the linebacker position, typically, like defensive coordinator, or not defensive coordinator, special teams coordinators want linebackers. Like That's why so many linebackers always go on day three because it's, that is the spot to pick special teamers from, especially the modern linebacker profile these days, which is emphasizing more about speed and fluidity in addition to guys that can hit. Hardy, at least in my opinion, fits that mold more than maybe linebackers of years past. And so I think he is a natural 
a natural fit for special teams demon early and then see what he can do as a linebacker later. I do want to talk about Quentin Lake. I don't think he would have been there in round six were it not for the durability concerns that he had at UCLA. He he was banged up a lot. And he's already, I mean, he's on the pup list right now, so it kind of helped true a little bit. He's got a knee issue, but going back to UCLA, he had soft tissue injuries. He had a wrist injury. Like, there was just always something there. But he's a really talented kid and also big and long and physical. And he definitely fits the type of safety they want. It's just about getting him on the field. So if they could just get him on the field and keep him on the field, he's going to be great. The, the Kyron Williams pick, I was... That's kind of whatever about. I felt I, like I, I, a lot of people loved Williams. A lot of people loved Williams. I was lower on him than the, I would say most other people. I thought he was fun. I thought the tape was really entertaining. But in terms of physical ability, I kind of felt I, I didn't I didn't get the work done combo or uh, comp that a lot of people were saying. I I wasn't ready to go that far in terms of the you know, small, ultra powerful, super quick. Like I wasn't, I, I didn't quite see work done. I understand why people did, but boy, it takes a lot for me to pull the trigger on that kind of comp. And he just didn't quite get there for me. So I'm okay with the pick. Cause at the end of the day, it's only a fifth rounder, but there were also plenty of other running backs on the board that I had uh, significantly higher grades on, at least just for me. Um, the Bruss and Durant picks, I was okay with. I thought that was I thought that was appropriate value for them. And then uh, Kendrick, I'm right there with you. There was just a million players on Georgia. Some of them were bound to fall through the cracks. I think they had uh, a record number of players drafted from that Georgia team, which is saying a lot considering uh, 2013 FSU. Like all 22 guys, all 22 starters eventually went to the NFL. How many Bama teams have we seen? Like 20 guys get drafted. So. That Georgia team was legendary, and just because he was taken in the sixth round doesn't mean that he wasn't a really good player. He just happened to be on perhaps the best college defense ever and was the ninth best guy on his own defense. Um, but yeah, that's kind of overall how I saw their draft. It, it, not necessarily any stars, but I think tons of special teams ability, tons of contributors, and Hopefully, ideally, a couple starters in there along the way. They don't need a whole lot of starters. I think they probably got two of them. Solid class. If we just talk about their draft picks being used on the trades they made and we throw the players they traded for in with this draft class, yeah, it looks a whole lot better. For sure. It's a different approach. Yeah, I really like Durant to be a guy that grows into a starter, and I think Logan Bruswell as well. So that's right off the top, and what you get, um, out of the players in the rest of the hall is, you know, gravy, special teams, snap-eating ability. The Kyron pick, I was more comfortable with it because it was a fifth. It's not that Kyron was my favorite back or that he was even the top back on the board, like you said, when they chose. Once it gets to the fifth round, dealer's choice, right? If you like that skill set, go for it. I made the Warwick Dunn comp, not because he reminded me of Warwick Dunn the pro. He moved like Warwick Dunn did did you also college. give a work done comp that, i was the one that told you that i was yeah, the first I, see that. I was the first one that told you that and it was because i watched you were Tyron one Williams. of maybe five people by the way that said that to me in april and i was like yeah. I, I, don't, yeah, I, don't know. I said it way before april but that's okay anyways <laughs> when i watched kyron williams it i it bugged me like it was one of those things that 
you know, just sort of sat in my jaw and I was like, who the hell does he move like? It's not that he was as well-rounded or as productive or as you said, as powerful, worked on, you know, was pretty strong in college and got really strong in the pros. And again, that's the weird thing with comps is the what were it done? The one that, you know, went on and won a Super Bowl or like the one that, you know, was really, uh, it just has a very distinctive running style. And I kept watching Kyron Williams and I had the same reaction overall to his tape that you did. I didn't love it. Like it was fun to watch, but in some total, I didn't come away going, I got to have that guy. And you know, I love running backs, but the thing that stuck about Kyron was how he moved. And I was like, I've seen this before. I've seen somebody that runs like this. And I went back and went back, took me a while. And, and I was like, Nope. And I went back to work Don's college film. And I was like, that's it. He looks like him when he runs, doesn't have the same results necessarily. Definitely isn't as strong overall, but the way he moves on the football field, carrying the football, very similar to college work done. So that's my full explanation for that comp that I made pretty early, like late January. Anyways, UDFAs, they brought in quite a few. It's part of this approach. They have to. They see them as a continuation of the draft class as well they should because they are. They've had good luck with them. A couple I want to highlight, Jamal Pettigrew, the tight end from McNeese State. Big guy, really productive, did not play at the largest college, had some buzz, but I don't think enough buzz for the player he was. Not surprised, given all of that, that he wasn't drafted. Again, the Rams swoop in, get one of those, I would say, premier UDFAs or, you know, priority UDFAs that they think is probably better than his quote-unquote draft status for free. And then Kier Thomas, the edge from Florida State, the other edge from Florida State, a lot of physical potential. Again, when you have a really good defensive line coach, you're going to take shots on what he likes, and he looks at the building blocks in Kier Thomas and says, you know, I think I could do some things with that. His track record says he can you go get them. Those are the only two that really stuck out besides Cameron Dicker, the kicker from Texas. Uh, if you're <laughs> going to go get a kicker, UDFA is a fine place to, you know, grab a kicker and see if he can push your incumbent. Um, so that was, that just to me said, you know, that's a really good, that's a smart front office value move. There are a few others that stuck out, but those were the two that I was like, Oh, those are the good gets. Yeah. I, I wasn't, you know, super enthusiastic about the UDFA class, but at the same time, I only probably watched about 80% of them. I didn't watch Deron Lowe. Um, I didn't get to Braden Thomas, even though a lot of people were talking about him towards the end. I just never got to him. I never got to the Holy Cross kid because good luck finding Holy Cross tape. Good Lord. Uh, Elijah Garcia from Rice. I saw one game, so I didn't get to do a full report. And then uh, Jamal Pettigrew, even though he went to McNeese, he was one of the only ones I watched. I liked him. Um, Thomas, I, I got through two games of him because I ran out of time to watch Florida State. All the Florida State games that I studied, I mostly focused on Jermaine Johnson. I didn't get to Thomas. But yeah, most most of them I watched, but some of them I didn't get to. And other than Pettigrew, I, I didn't have pretty strong thoughts on any of them, but considering the Rams' tight end room right now is Higby, Blanton, Bryson Hopkins, based on the report I did on Pettigrew and his physical ability, 
I don't see why he can't make the roster. The tight end room is one of the thinnest position groups they have. And if anybody of this, of this UDFA group is going to make the team, I think it's going to be him. Yeah. Bryson apparently looks faster this year. That's the report out of Rams camp specifically about Bryson is that he's, he worked on speed in the off season, which I'm encouraged by because he, I think he's a player that we saw him at the 2020 senior bowl. And he's one of those players that had a lot of hype, right? There are mm-hmm. just a lot of people pushing him is like, well, we have to decide who the number one TE prospect is. And it's Some early. People so we're saying he was a second round pick that year. And I'm like, yeah, ah, I don't know. About well, that. that was the thing is he had that kind of hype. Uh, he comes from NFL bloodlines. He's Brad Hopkins son. And a lot of people got really excited about, about him and then we saw him in person and he's a good player he's a fine player but he wasn't even the best tight end at that event and we both kind of went okay so that's the that's te1 in some people's minds okay so i'm glad to hear that he's looking faster again you know it's a fight it out kind of room after higby and you know could that be the opening that you know Pettigrew needs could be it, you know, is Hopkins going to bring some increased speed so that they can run more, you know, two personnel speed or two tight end speed stuff? Maybe that'd be fun to see. So it's wide open, but that's what you want to see when you're a UDFA. You don't want to see four really established starters that you're coming in behind that you're going to have to break through. You're going to want to see like, hey, if I work hard and get the terminology down fast, I might be TE two or three. That still means I'm on the team. By the way, for the three of you out there that have access to McNeese State film, watch 2020, don't watch 2021 when it comes to Pettigrew. That's where you really see uh, you really see his physical ability because he was an extremely athletic prospect, 6'6", 250, 36.5-inch vert, 162, 10-yard split. Like he, his RAS was extremely, I was like 9'4", if I recall correctly. But um, I remember, I can't say exactly where I got it, but I, I still had McNeese left over from uh, guys that I was studying in the previous draft class. And when I was going through, because he only had like seven catches in 2021. And uh, when I was going through, I noticed that he popped off the year before that. That was the year after he transferred in from LSU. And I watched the 2020 tape after I watched what little I could get from 2021. And that's where I was like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. I, I remember. Good. Yeah. 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 So th- again, that's for like uh, three of you out there that even have access to that. <laughs> but if you're interested, go watch uh, Pettigrew's 2020 McNeese State. It's, it's pretty fun stuff. Anyway, tangent done. Let's get to our final segment. Team floor, team ceiling. This is where we project the absolute ceiling in wins for this very talented Rams team. And their absolute floor in wins that we see. The range is relatively small because of how talented this team is. Like, I can't see any scenario other than, you know, the the elbow injury causing Stafford to miss significant games. That's the only scenario where I see them winning less than nine games. But all health permitting, their floor for me is nine, which is still above 500. Their ceiling, though, not that far off. I, I struggled with if I could justify bumping it up to 13 and giving them that extra, you know, potential win after they did went 12 and 5 last year. Looking at their schedule, though, like it's it's rough. This is a very tough schedule for a defending Super Bowl champion. 
because they got to go through the Bills week one, which I'm going to that game. They got to go through uh, the Niners in in the Bay, by the way, in week four. They always give them trouble. Then they got to go against the Cowboys, the Niners again, uh, and Shanahan versus McVay is lopsided to say the least so far. Then they got the Bucks, a rematch with an angry Tom Brady. Good luck with that. Uh, they got the Saints a couple weeks after that. Then the Chiefs, the Raiders, the Packers, the Broncos, the Chargers. They're playing all the AFC West teams towards the back half of the year. And then they close it out, by the way, in Seattle. So very tough schedule. I could see them sweeping the Seahawks, but I don't know. Something about Seahawks just screams random fuckery split. <laughs> that we don't see coming, not to mention all the other really good teams they play against. I'm comfortably putting the ceiling at 12 right now, realistically expecting 11. Doesn't mean that they're a worse team. In fact, they might even be a better team and a more dangerous team in the playoffs this year than they were last year. But my God, this schedule sucks. It's not fun. And it's never fun to be the Super Bowl champs because whenever you go to somebody's town, they're they're trying to knock you off the block that's the gig that's that's the weight heavy is the head that wears the crown they're wearing the crown that's why it's hard to repeat as a super bowl champ and it doesn't happen uh, in consecutive years very often so i matched you 12 wins nine win floor i couldn't go up to 13 because of the schedule and because it's really hard they are playing the afc west we've talked repeatedly throughout our divisional preview summary that that's the kaiju division the giant monsters who are coming for you it's going to be hard to win any of those games it's really hard in general to lose only five games in an nfl season even if you're a really good team. 17 mm -hmm. week season now it's hard to hold concentration for everyone. It's not that they're looking past games or anything else, but the other team is good and well-paid and motivated too, full of professional athletes that want to, you know, knock off the Super Bowl champs, even if they're having a bad year. So everybody brings their A game to your game, which is a bummer if you're the defending Super Bowl champs. They are going to have to fight and claw and scratch for every single win. So I agree with you that they might be a better team and win less games this year. They could win 10 games and be a better team if they survive that gauntlet of a schedule. So 12's my top, 9's my floor. I still think they're going to make the playoffs. I still think they're going to be a force there. It would take multiple injuries to multiple units to make that, to make them toothless enough that I didn't think they'd hit that 9 wins. And even then... As long as they still got Stafford and Cup and Donald and Jalen. You got those four, you got a shot. Because <laughs> those are the scale tippers. And then also let's throw in Allen Robinson. Yeah, I was going to say, let's, throw in Bobby let's not Wagner forget early. about Allen Robinson, shall we? You know what? We didn't even mention that Andrew Whitworth retired. We forgot to throw him in I... the... I alluded to it with the Brian Allen thing. I said most of the offensive line was held together. Whitworth, we should say a couple of words about you know, big wit, uh, fascinating guy, tremendous NFL player and champion got to retire after Super Bowl, which is amazing. Uh, has a tremendous sense of humor, has been hanging out at Rams camp with his kids this year. Uh, seems like a genuinely good human being. Uh, Walter Payton, man of the war, uh, man of the year award winner, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, just a great dude and just a, a hat tip to to big wit we'll miss him 
is fun to watch on the field and fun to listen to off the field, which we still get to do, which is really cool. Uh, but good for him for being able to sail out. He's 40, 40? I think he's 40 or 41, yeah, which 40 either way, how many right offensive the... tackles played a 40? Come on And now. play well. Like, he was <laughs> not a liability in their Super Bowl run. That's that's amazing. So really glad he got to send it off with a ring. Um, really glad we're still going to hear from him. He doesn't look like he's going to be a stranger, and both of those things are awesome. Love that guy. One of my favorite tackles of his generation. Constantly uh, underrated. You know, he... Unfortunately, was stuck on a lot of bad teams during his career, so he didn't get the awards that he deserved. Uh, you know, he probably should have had at least three more All Pros than he did because he was virtually unbeatable in his prime. Really happy to see him at least get a ring out of his career, and obviously the respect and admiration of everybody for getting Walter Payton, Payton Man of the Year. Um, couldn't imagine a better end for uh, for a guy like that. So. On that note, EJ, we have one more episode in this entire series, 40 episodes total. The next one is going to be on the NFC West as a whole, where we're making division predictions, that is, predictions for all the individual awards, uh, MVP, Player of the Year, Rookie of the Year, Coach of the Year, of course, division winner. A lot of good teams to choose from in this division to pick the division winner, so it's a tough, tough, tough call. But we'll be doing all that tomorrow when our last episode of the series goes live. So hope you join us for that one. It's going to be a special one. And uh, until then, later. Take care.